Genesis chapter 39, verses 4 to 21, which is found on page 40 of your pew Bibles. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The word of the Lord. So we are in the Christian season of Lent, which is, you might know, the 40 days in which we walk with Jesus towards the cross, towards Good Friday. And it's a season of preparation for Easter to experience the full resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And so during this Lenten season, we're going to be using the seven deadly sins to guide our journey, to examine our hearts, to help us to prepare for the resurrection life that Jesus offers to each of us. Um, I'm not going to do any introduction to the seven deadly sins. There's something printed in your bulletin. Hopefully that'll carry the freight of most of the introductory. I just wanted three quick observations about the seven deadly sins. We are doing this, first and foremost, not to point any fingers to our wider culture to say, how awful you are. That's not the intent at all. As Christians, we don't expect people who don't follow Jesus to live Jesus' way. Now, this is a tool that the church, that Christians have always said, this, this is about me. This is about my heart. This is about my life. 
It is, the seven deadly sins is a, is a mirror, and it asks us, take a look. See what's in your heart. So it's not any finger-pointing, condemning at our culture. It's just looking in. And maybe how we have been shaped by our culture, but it's about us and our hearts. It is, secondly, not about us obsessing with sin. Because sin is such a dead-end game. What we want, what, what we want is the full life of Jesus to fully embrace all that Christ has to offer to us. And to do that, what we need to do often is to let go of the lesser things that we try to fill up our lives with. We need to let those things go, those sins, in order to embrace the full life of Jesus. And so that the seven deadly sins help guide us in that. And then lastly, and maybe it's a question you might think as you read through the seven deadly sins, why make such a fuss over these particular seven Maybe some of them, you know, you might categorize up there. But, I mean, some of the other ones like gluttony, sloth, lust. Really? Does that rate high up there with all the other injustices going on in the world? One author, Robert Solomon, asked this. He says, why would God bother to raise an eyebrow over these sins that barely jiggle the scales of justice? What I hope we'll see is that that perspective really misunderstands uh, the nature of these seven deadly sins and that 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 sort of trivialization of this sin does not help us but that these sins actually are lead to profound problems that vex our world today and that holiness the holiness Jesus offers that it does matter it matters a lot this past Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday, we looked at the first of these seven deadly sins, pride, which sort of functions as a root uh, for all the rest. And, and this week, we continue, this Sunday, we continue on with this series with lust, our bulletin. If you missed it, you can't sort of miss it. Boom, there it is, lust. We figured it's a chilly day. We need to heat things up a little bit here. Um, we figured it's Valentine's Day. How appropriate, Right. And by the way, you're invited, if you don't have a dinner date or a, a thing for later on, tonight's service, the 5 p.m. service, is going to be a, a different twist. We're inviting a counselor, John Stanley, from the Christian Counseling Center, and he's going to help us in a conversation look at a form of lust called pornography, and, which is endemic in our culture. And, and we're going to look at the impact uh, and, and some hope and healing from pornography, too. So if... You're at all brave or have nothing to do, come on out. It'll be a good evening together as we uh, learn more. But frankly, you know what? Lust is a hard vice to avoid because we live in, in this profoundly hyper-sexualized culture. I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time chronicling that at all because every day we are bombarded with inducements to lust. So much so that uh, many people in our culture, and perhaps some of us here, might wonder, so really, what's the problem with lust? I mean, isn't it just sort of a, harmful, a harmless uh, sort of fascination? Why make such a big fuss about this? And what place do you have poking around the bedrooms of people anyway? Well, I think this past week in Toronto... 
is sort of an emblem for why this is important. This past week in Toronto, there's been a trial going on for a media celebrity. And in that trial, we see, I think, some of the fallout of where lust leads. We can catch sight of, of why it's important for us to talk about sex, about what it is, and about who it's for, and about what it means. In this trial, all of a sudden, you've got these allegations of sexual assault. Is that what sex is for? Come on. We see relationships that have just gotten so twisted, criminal activities, women feeling unprotected by our justice system, ruined reputations. I mean, do you see life there? Do you see human flourishing in that? It's just ashes, it feels like. That's where this deadly vice leads us every time, ashes. And so this morning... As we deal with this, I want, to, I want to deal with it tenderly because it is so rampant and many of us have been impacted and affected by lust in, in some way or another. Perhaps we feel slaves to it ourselves. Perhaps it, it, it feels like this uninvited intruder that keeps knocking on the door of our lives and we don't know how to keep it out. Maybe we've been hurt or maybe, maybe we've drunk the Kool-Aid of our culture um, about sex. We've been duped by it. So I want to deal tenderly with this subject. But I also want to be straight up that there is a measure of, I guess, toughness to it because it's a deadly vice. It hurts. It harms. It depersonalizes us. And so it's important for us to get real and straight up on this. So let's be tough and tender about this. And to do that, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for your love, your concern for us, your abiding, seeking out our flourishing. This is what you wish, God. You're not this prudish, sniveling deity who just seeks to impose rules that constrict and limit us for no reason at all. The boundaries you set are boundaries in which life flourishes. And so as we deal with this subject of lust that is so real within the world that we exist and probably so real in some of our lives, God, we pray that you would be gentle with us. And thank you that that is just how you are, gentle and loving. And thank you that in that context, God, in the security and safety of grace, we can be honest and transparent with you about what is in our heart. Holy Spirit, work in us today as we attend to this word and attend, listen for the wisdom of this beautiful Christian tradition of how we deal with this very important part of human life, our sexuality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read this morning, we heard this story of Joseph. Probably a story familiar to many of you after being sold into slavery by his brothers, um, which Joseph's life turns south pretty quickly. All of a sudden, things take a turn for the better. He gets hired on, he gets bought by uh, a high official in the Egyptian society, a guy named Potiphar. And because Joseph was such a good steward, a good manager, he soon rose in the estate of this man to essentially be the COO, the chief operating officer of this huge estate of Potiphar. 
And uh, in this narrative, so this sets up the stage. Here's Joseph, high position, you know, sort of second in command to the master himself, to Potiphar. And in this, we see the story of how lust gets played out through, really, Potiphar's wife. We get to learn and understand what lust is and how it plays out and how we can be healed of it. And very quickly, I think one of the first things we can note from this story is that lust is never a man's problem. That's how often it gets played out in our culture, that th- this, is, this is especially a guy's problem. And while lust does tend to be the field of specialization for men, women, women are affected too. Um, here it is, a woman, Potiphar's wife, who is lusting after Joseph, which I love about how the Bible is, is just so honest and realistic about life and human nature. It doesn't cut the edges off. It, here it is. It's reality. It, it affects both of us, men and women. We're all in this together. And Potiphar's wife, we read, took notice of Joseph and saw that he was, quote, well-built and handsome. Paraphrase, Joseph was a hottie, Hey, That's what the Bible's saying. He was well-built and handsome. Now, we need to make some important qualifications and distinctions here about sexual desire and about lust. Really important, because simply put, sexual desire is not lust. It does not equate. Sexual desire in itself is a good thing to see someone. And appreciate the beauty of how God made them is a good, natural part of who we are. The Bible never anywhere says that sexual desire is wrong in itself. That it is somehow bad or polluting or defiling. Not at all. In fact, the Bible probably has one of the most glorious views. The highest view of sex in any form of faith or religion or philosophy anywhere. So Victorian prudery has no place with a biblical sexual ethic. Human sexuality and desire is a gift from God. The human body, of course, has a glory about it, doesn't it? Something holy, something beautiful. And don't you wonder when God created Adam and Eve and they met for the first time, just the sense of wonder and awe they must have had as they took each other's bodies in, the goodness of it. That was one moment where Adam could legitimately say, Eve, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. (laughs) And there is goodness to this, right? Part of the reason naked bodies are alluring and attractive is because that's how they're created. They're created beautiful. And so the desire we feel is a good created desire. Let's never denigrate that or diminish the goodness of that. Sexual desire in itself is not lust. No, instead what we're talking about here, this deadly vice, is a disordered desire. The biblical word for lust actually is, is sort of a neutral word. Um, it doesn't even refer immediately to sex. Um, it, it means something like to set your heart fully upon something. It, 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 in sort of in an excessive way, an over-desire. It's a desire that has gone off the rails, a desire that is out of order, a disordered desire. So when Potiphar's wife looked at Joseph, she admired what she saw. Again, nothing wrong with that. He was well-built and handsome. He was haughty. All right. Okay. But then, 
that moved, that looking moved elsewhere, that look lingered, it turned into a leering ogle, it turned into a desire to possess, a desire to devour. And that's where the disorder of the desire begins. And we see the disordered nature of this desire in many ways here in this story. First, there's this obsessive quality to it. We read that day after day, she propositioned Joseph. It's this relentless, obsessive nature to it. She contemplated Joseph's good looks and then contemplated what she wanted to do with him. And then she spent so much time contemplating what she wanted to do with him in bed that finally she decided we need to do this in reality. And so day after day, her initial lingering looks moved towards obsessive thoughts that moved towards action. She couldn't stop. Day after day. Which, which often makes you wonder, anyone who's experienced lust often struggles to understand it. There is this addictive, obsessive quality to it. I don't understand it in my own heart. We really do underestimate the power of the force that lust can hold over us. The lengths it will drive people to. The things it leads people to do. Just totally out of whack with what might normally be accepted. But more than the obsessive quality, um, we see less disordered nature because here's the thing, it is desire without a promise. Potiphar's wife desires sex with Joseph without the promise of a covenant relationship, a committed relationship. Joseph is very clear in that response to her, right? How does he name her request as wrong, as wicked? He, he says, you're his wife, <laughs> That's the problem with your request. You're not mine. You're his wife. Sex is designed between a man and a woman in a complete, exclusive, permanent commitment called marriage. Now, why did the Bible say such a thing like that? Here's the reason why. Because there is a design to sex, a purpose to it. A lot of people in our culture believe that Sex is sort of like any other human appetite. It's a biological urge. You know, I'm thirsty, I drink water, I have this sexual desire, I have sex. And we sort of trivialize sex to that level. It's biological or it's just recreational. It's fun. But really? Look at the language. Look at how we talk about sex. I find that view so strange. It's strange because when people talk and sing about sex, you know the language they use? They start using high, lofty, divine, eternal language. I will love you forever. As long as there are stars in the sky, I'll love you. When we under the power of sexual desire, we talk about eternity. It's so strange to, to reduce sex like that because in, in our culture, we raise our daughters to be whole people and yet the whole culture says it's just about your bodies. It's so strange because of the so many people that I talk to whose hearts have been sort of torn apart because they gave their, not only their body but their heart to someone and yet that person didn't offer the rest of them. They only gave them that one night. 
Why do we talk about sex with such ultimate and a sacred sense? Why does the sexual act come with so many longings and yearnings and feelings to share all of your life with that person? Because that's the way sex is designed. The Bible says sex is fit for a marriage covenant because it's designed for two purposes. Two goals in mind. The first, one of them is a, a natural byproduct of thirst. The second one, of course, is to have children, to recreate, to procreate life. That's plain. That's pretty obvious. But secondly, uh, it's to bring a man and a woman into a one flesh union. It unites two people. It's a loving union. It, com- it completes the union between a, a man and a woman. And this physical, sexual union is a sign of that union of that, those two persons in every other way. And so the Bible says, don't attach yourself. Don't act out something physically that isn't also true specifically personally, socially, legally, spiritually, in every other way. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't sleep with a prostitute. Because don't you know that whoever you sleep with, you become one with. The Bible, you see, recognizes that we're whole people, that we're, we're knit together as integrated whole beings, and you can't sort of separate one from the other without affecting the, all the others. And so our bodies and our psyches and our minds and our souls, all of that is interconnected, and sex is an expression of that whole person, of what that unity that happens at all the levels. It is a joining together of two persons, physically, personally, socially, spiritually. And if you don't believe that, listen to Hollywood. Here's a movie from Hollywood, Vanilla Sky. Don't know if you've ever seen it. In the scene, there's a, a, a guy named Tom Cruise. You probably heard of him. He's playing, you know, sort of the, the handsome playboyish guy. He has a fling with a woman named Julie, played by Cameron Diaz. But after a while, he gets bored with her. And so he dumps her. But she doesn't want that. And, and she confronts him about this. And she says, quote, don't you know when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, even whether you do or not. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. Now that is straight out of scripture. It is, it is just such a lie to say that sex is just an appetite, to say that it's, it's a recreational activity. This is why Jesus got tough on lust. This is why Christians do get concerned about healthy sex. Because Jesus is concerned about the value of people. About the integrity, the healing, and the wholeness of human beings. Jesus wants to honor others, to protect human beings, and and not have us use one another as things. Which is what lust is. It's a perversion of love. Because love always seeks to honor the other as a whole person, but lust seeks to use the other person uh, as a way to find gratification. Lust separates out the other person, which is what another form of this disordered desire we see. So Potiphar's wife lusts after Joseph, wanting sex without the promise of marriage, but more the disordered desire we see her desire is for sexual desire without a person involved. So without a promise and without a person. You see this near the end. When Joseph, you know, emphatically turns away all her propositions. Um, 
when, and finally he says no, and he's got to run away. What does she do? She conjures up some allegations that would get any slave executed. Any slave brought up on the charges she's bringing would be executed. Now, why would she do that if she loves him? She doesn't. This is what lust does. It objectifies. She wanted just the experience. She didn't want him. She doesn't care what happens to him. If he gets murdered, okay, that's his problem. Lust wants sexual desire without the person. She's saying, I want your body, but not you. And I'll give you my body, but you, you don't get me. You won't have me. Talk about an unnatural, right? That sort of separation. The Christian ethic is utterly natural. Keeping together, holding together body and soul. Any other ethic destroys that integrity of a person. It pulls them apart. This, this deadly vice of lust has, has no concern for the other. Lust is, is sex made into a self-gratification project. With lust, sex is all about me. It's about the habit of trying to engineer my own happiness my, for myself on my own terms. See, sex as God designed is meant to be interpersonal. The way to be known and to know another person. It is the intercourse of two people. But lust, says one author, one philosopher, Rebecca Kaneindike de Young, lust pretends sex and sexual pleasure is a party for one. It trivializes the wonder and mystery of sex. And it isolates people. It doesn't bring them together. It isolates them. It is, it is so hard to understand. I mean, I can know it in myself, but it's so hard to understand it. The bizarre manifestations of lust, right? What fuels that? Isn't, isn't it so striking, shocking to think of the risks that people will take to pursue this? I mean, think of the politicians who have just crashed careers through affairs they've had. Think of, think of priests and clergy who have, again, sacrificed so much to pursue the sexual desire. What is it? Is, is it the forbidden nature of it? Is it that we're so lonely? Do we feel an emptiness so deeply inside? What drives people to be willing to sacrifice so much to respond to lust? South African novelist Alan Payton writes about that, about the, the mystery of this. He writes about a police officer who had a one-night fling, just a thoughtless fling with a young woman. And afterwards, in the hours after, he finds himself thinking through and feeling the impact of what he'd done. And Payton writes this. He says he thought of his children with special agony for what kind of man would destroy what he had created and hurt what he had loved. In those last 12 hours, the whole world had changed because of this one insensate act. And what madness makes a man pursue something so unspeakable, deaf to the cries of his wife and children, blind to their danger, to grasp one unspeakable pleasure that brought no joy, 10,000 of which pleasures were not worth one of the hairs of his children's head. Such desire, he writes, could not just be the desire of the flesh, but some mad desire of a sick and twisted heart. Who can understand that? It just can't be the physical, right? It can't just be the rush of pleasure. Like all the seven deadly vices 
what lust ultimately promises is utter happiness, ecstasy. Lust fools us into thinking that it will deliver our lives bliss. In an interview with a, uh, the novelist John Updike, um, he was asked, why do you write about religion and sex so much? Those are big themes in his writings. And he said something like this. He said, I write about religion because people want to go to heaven. And I write about sex because they want to know what it's like. We want to know ecstasy, don't we? We want to know the bliss of just intimate communion where we are known and we can know one another. We want to know what it is like to utterly lose ourselves in the joy of another. Our hearts long to know these things. But lust is this pretender suggestively offering them to you and me, but all the while never able to deliver. All it delivers is ashes, just ashes. We, we need to start naming the lie in this over-sexualized culture. You know, our children, our young adults need to hear the gospel truth that human beings are not just their bodies. We are whole persons created in the image of God. We need to call out the destructive sexualized message. We need to help our young women understand that beauty magazines lie most of the time. We need to fight the deception that says... We can't expect our youth to control their desires. That would be unhealthy, right? If they didn't respond to those natural sexual desires. Come on, that is just bunk, isn't it? That believes that we're slaves to every whim and desire we experience. And along with that, we need to create safe, compassionate, grace-filled spaces where we can tell the truth about how lust functions in our life. Because most of us hide it. And in hiding, in those shadows, lust just heightens its power over us. If that's, if that's you, if you've been hiding that secret, if, something, if lust is something that plagues your life, if you recognize it in your life today, can I ask you, do one thing today. Tell your secret to someone else to a spouse, to a trusted friend, but confess it and really confess it. You know, don't hedge, don't hide, but come clean because there is probably not a better way to disarm the power of lust in your life than to openly talk about it, confess it to someone else. So we need to talk about it openly, but we also need to learn how to see things clearly, to, to tell our hearts the truth. You know, when Potiphar's wife came to Joseph back in, uh, in Genesis 39 here, um, when she says, come to bed with me, what does he say? You're his wife, you know. How, how can I do that? Think about what, how can I do that for what he's done for me? Think of what God has done for me. I cannot do this wicked thing. Here's what he did. He, he, he's looking at lust with all its true colors, seeing it truly for what it is if you want to get over lust one of the things you're going to have to do when it begins to happen to you is to think about it about its reality and speak the truth of it to your heart you got to say you know this disordered desire i feel i feel this desire it's strong it's palpable but it's disordered and what i really want to do is worship actually my heart is actually seeking god in this 
I'm seeking some form of acceptance. I want to experience some form of beauty. And this looks so good, but it's never going to deliver it to me. In fact, it's only going to deliver ashes to me. What am I doing? That's the type of conversation we need to speak to our hearts. Because ultimately, this is a heart issue. It's about the desire of a heart that is disordered, about a heart that has become twisted and bent. And no matter how hard you try to stamp out lust from your heart through various behavioral things, and those are all important, ultimately it's powerful. And the only antidote to lust is a more powerful affection, something that grabs and calls your heart with a greater degree of passion and joy. One pastor, Thomas Chalmers, wrote a few hundred years ago, he wrote this, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. He's saying all our hearts look for, long for, something to fill them with joy and beauty. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. Therefore, the only way to get rid, uh, to rid the heart of an old affection is by the power of a new one. We need a new affection. We need Jesus Christ to become so ravishing, powerful to our hearts, so real that lust looks like the ashes it is. What tilts your heart away from lust is something more beautiful, more ravishing, more bliss-filled than lust. Look than lust. Look to Jesus. Do you know, do you see how beautiful his grace is? How ravishing his love is? Seek his face. Seek his beauty. Look to the cross, which is what we're doing at Lent. Survey the cross. Take its measurement. And find in it the full measure of God's grace and love. In that cross, Jesus is greater than any of our darkest seekers. And from that cross, hear Jesus say, your disordered desires, your sexual sins are forgiven. I love you. You are freed. Understand that lust is a disordered desire. And what your heart ultimately seeks is found in the unconditional grace and love of Christ. The grace we see in the power of the cross is the power to break free from lust. And that is available to all of us. So look to Christ who offers us this fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And yet we try to find comfort in something else. Why rake in the mud puddle when God has offered you a feast of joy and goodness. The thing we are tempted by is a pleasure that will just wear off so soon. It is a sham. It is a cheat. But God's pleasure, though it might start small, will grow and live forever. Seek in Jesus this greater joy and beauty and pleasure. Let him be the lover of your soul. Amen.